you know, to everybody listening out there, everything that we've been able to accomplish this year is directly the result of your efforts. It's advocates like you out there that make it possible for us to actually get our foot in the door and advocate on the issues that will make a real difference in your lives. Hello and welcome to all to this week's episode of Connecting ALS. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, and I'm sharing the line with my co-host on the East Coast, Jeremy Holden. Hello to you, sir. Hey, Mike. How you doing this week? I'm feeling optimistic, Jeremy, and not simply because we are nearing the end of an extremely difficult year, but the ALS community is still buzzing about last week's big advocacy win surrounding the removal of the five-month waiting period to access SSDI, and uh, we're starting to see the first doses of the COVID vaccines, which as we talked to Dr. Gooch about last week, they're beginning to roll out to frontline healthcare workers in various states. And Jeremy, there's a new hub at ALS.org where visitors can find all kinds of info related to COVID-19 and the vaccine. Yeah, that's right, Mike. And that hub will be updated. We can share a link to that in the show notes. So for listeners who do have questions and want to know more about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and how people with ALS can get access to that, the most important thing, talk to your doctor, talk to your physicians about this. But go to the hub. There'll be plenty of information. It'll be updated regularly. I know that uh, there's some reports that the FDA may soon be approving the the Moderna vaccine. Mm -hmm. So uh, help is on the way. Go back and listen to that uh, conversation with Dr. Gooch from last week and check out the hub. And, uh, you know, Mike, you talked also about the big news in Social Security disability insurance from last week. You know, really excited about that. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit with a guest today. Yeah, that's right. We hopped on the line to discuss that and really all the legislative happenings from the past year with the ALS Association's Associate Director of Government Affairs, Abram Bielowski. And he recapped a big year and gave us a look at the road ahead in advocacy. So let's listen back to that now. We're joined today by Abram Bielowskis, the ALS Association's Associate Director of Government Affairs. Welcome to the show and thanks for being with us, Abram. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I finally get to participate. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. We're really excited to talk to you and and we're bringing you on as part of a series where we're looking back and reflecting on the year that was. And in your world of advocacy, it certainly was an active one and one during which the ALS community had several reasons to celebrate some victories. I don't want to step on your touchdown call. So Abram, can you elaborate on some of the the bigger moments of the year in ALS advocacy for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I I guess before we really get into this, I just really want to recognize how isolated and alone that we're all feeling and really excited that Congress and it looks to be the White House soon are about to deliver the ALS community a really big goal of ours, which has been to pass the ALS Disability Insurance Access Act. And that bill would waive the five-month waiting period for Social Security Disability Insurance for people with ALS. This has been a bill that the ALS Association has been working on for a long time now. It was first introduced back in 2016, and I've actually introduced the bill twice myself. So it's very near and dear to my heart. I've had hundreds of meetings with staff, members of Congress, and that doesn't even include all of the thousands of meetings that ALS advocates have had over the years. And so we're really excited to see this finally happening. It's, it's, you know, a real milestone in our efforts to get people with ALS immediate access to not just Social Security, but also Medicare due to disability. So the ALS community has been working in this space for quite a long time. And so 
Back in 2000, Congress actually waived the 24-month waiting period for Medicare benefits, mm-hmm. only to later learn that they also had to wait five months in addition to that to get SSDI before they could get access to either benefit. So this is really exciting for the ALS community and comes right on the heels of our Senate champions announcing that they're recommending the Department of Defense's ALS research program again, double funding from 20 million to 40 million. And so last year, the ALS community was successful in doubling funding from 10 to 20. Now we're hopeful to get from 20 to 40. And so that's a quadruple of funding over just two years. And so this is really exciting. This is really exciting news for the ALS community. Yeah, and Abram, we had an opportunity to talk to Senator Lisa Murkowski uh, soon after the Senate approved or recommended that $40 million in funding. And she kind of walked us through just the exponential growth in funding for that program over the years. And, uh, you know, who knows by the time we're able to bring this uh, this episode to our listeners, uh, we may have uh, some great news on that front. I, I, I want to go back to the, the SSDI bill. You talked about all the hard work that, that, that you and the team and, of course, the advocates across the country have put into making this happen. You know, Senator Whitehouse, one of the sponsors of that bill, a Democrat up in Rhode Island, said when it passed the Senate, it can look easy when it's 96 to 1 in the Senate, when it's a voice vote in the House. But just talk a little bit about how the groundwork for that seemingly easy vote happened with years and years of hard work. Yeah, and just to give a little bit of context to that, I know that especially for ALS, Four years is a long time to pass the bill, and unfortunately, so many people with ALS have passed during that time. But, you know, less than 3% of bills have passed over that period. Very few bills pass into law, and when you think about that 3%, most of them are renaming post offices and highways, not, (laughs) like, real bills that actually help people. And so this is a huge achievement, and... It's taken a lot of work to get to this point. You know, in the first Congress, um, 114th Congress, when we introduced this in 2016, there were just a handful of co-sponsors. The next Congress, we started off with, you know, I want to say like 50. And then it, most recently in 2019, when we introduced the bill, I think we had like a 900% increase in original co-sponsors in the Senate. So that essentially just transitioned every co-sponsor from the previous Congress over as a co-sponsor and above 100% in the house and so this has been a steady effort of working with the ALS community with some amazing collaborations across different organizations and with thousands and thousands of advocates sending messages i think that we had over 54,000 messages sent congress alone by ALS advocates yeah yeah, it's incredible. And to think that this is happening at a time, uh, you, you alluded to it, the, the isolation, the quarantines across the country, uh, not, not quite as easy to show up at your congressman's office and walk them through the need for this. I know that we had Ashley on earlier this year, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic to talk about the ways that advocacy was going to change. Talk to us a little bit about how the work was impacted by the pandemic and by some of the challenges that that put on us to have those in-person meetings. Yeah. And and again, I really just want to say to everybody listening, I really hope everybody's doing well and taking care of themselves. Hope you're staying safe and healthy, really hoping to have this vaccine come to us all soon and just rest assured that the ALS Association is doing everything that it can to try to get the ALS community prioritized because they're at such high risk for this virus. But COVID has really changed the way that we all meet 
the way that we all advocate and that we all work. So the ALS Association is working completely remotely and following the pandemic start, it's had to change the way that we do advocacy with the Hill uh, and with federal agencies. And so this year we had our first ever virtual advocacy conference. Normally that's an in-person event every late May, early June. But this year, thanks to being able to make that remote, we we actually saw a really big increase in the number of people with ALS that were able to participate in those meetings. And so COVID's definitely been a little bit of a double-edged sword in that it's, you know, caused us all to be much more remote and isolated. But at the same time, it's given us and helped us realize the, the kind of technology and tools that we have to really influence Congress. And this is, has has shown. And so lobbying the number of people hasn't really changed for me. I've had just as much meetings as I've, as I've ever had and a lot more as our bill got closer to passage. The Hill is mostly on Zoom. I think that we all have a little bit of fatigue with that at this point, but I've been getting a lot more text messages and people are just really taking advantage of all the new technology that's helped to bring us closer together. So while I think that it's difficult to have as good a human connection advocating on Zoom versus the telephone, it's a lot more valuable because you still get to see face-to-face like we all are right now. And so that's something that I think that we're going to benefit from in the future is just having realized all this new technology, all these new ways we can engage with each other is really going to be helpful, especially to the ALS community who has some difficulty getting to the event in D.C. every year. We'll be able to engage more folks. And do you expect, Abram, that this congressional office is going forward will operate in some sort of hybrid uh, way, uh, even after the vaccine and things get back to quote unquote normal, where, um, you know, th- certainly we hope that in person meetings will be able to happen again at some point. But because uh, more access is there virtually and people are able to zoom in from, you know, different parts uh, of different states, do you think that that will be the norm going forward? I mean, I certainly hope so, at least for a lot of patient communities where it helps to get more people engaged because only. So many people can actually afford to come to D.C. Some people can't even, you know, access airplanes with all of the technology that they need to do that. And that's something that we're working on as well. So I think that at the very least, and you all know this just from working, is that it's definitely broken the ice with, you know, employers allowing people to work remotely. And so I think that it's going to definitely be something that congressional offices are a lot more willing to do now that they have so much experience doing it. So I'm really optimistic about the potential for advocacy being more inclusive going forward. You raise an interesting point, Abram, about the uh, not just folks who otherwise would have come to D.C. for advocacy or gone to their uh, you know local offices, but folks who may not have been engaged for other reasons, whether it's expense or some of the uh, physical limitations, now able to do so in, in a way as we embrace this technology. You mentioned two big wins uh, here as we wind down 2020. That's not all that has kept you and and the advocates busy. Talk to us a little bit about some of the other successes that we saw in 2020. Yeah, I mean, so just jumping back quickly to the DOD increased funding, one of the other things that the Senate also included there was some report language, which is language that the Appropriations Committee includes along with its funding numbers to encourage federal agencies and let them know how the committee would like funding to be used. And so one of the things that we fought very hard for the Ellis Association developed a science-based case for support for increasing funding for this program that was based on taking any additional funding and using it to expand the portfolio and focus of the program from being solely focused on preclinical research like it primarily is now 
to opening up its portfolio and also focusing on funding early stage clinical trials to really help pull through some of the most promising research that that program has. So our goal is to de-risk private investment in the sector, and we're really excited to see that report language. It's just as big a win, um, assuming that this all goes through and is approved by the full Congress as that increased funding. But beyond this, one of the issues that we had been working on at the beginning of the year was protecting access to non-invasive ventilators. And mm-hmm. so this so the Medicare program added non-invasive ventilators to its competitive bidding program, which in a nutshell is a program where the government asks manufacturers to bid for devices and then mm-hmm. they take the lowest bid. And then that's what all of the manufacturers and providers in that region have to adhere to. That was a real problem for uh, non-invasive ventilators because they require so much hands-on servicing that average people aren't able to do. And so respiratory therapists are completely needed to actually service and use those devices as the needs of the patient change. And so that would have basically resulted in situations where the providers no longer would have been able to subsidize providing access and care by respiratory therapists, which would have basically made the devices useless. And so following the COVID pandemic starting, as you know, people with ALS, they're, they're at very high risk for the disease. And the majority of people with ALS will die from respiratory failure. And so this was a huge issue that we were able to push through, make the White House realize, and Medicare actually ended up removing those devices from competitive bidding. So that was a huge win as well. And probably top of mind to a lot of people with ALS right now are access to new promising therapies that are in the pipeline for people with ALS. And that's going to be a huge focus of the ALS Association as as we go into the new Congress going forward. And so most recently, over the past couple of months, we wrapped up a petition with other ALS groups to have the Food and Drug Administration approve Analyx, which is a new compound that's finished, I believe, phase two of clinical trials. Uh, and the data is just absolutely amazing. It basically com- combines two compounds that have already been approved by the FDA. And so we really want to see this approved as soon as possible and made accessible to people with ALS. And to do that, uh, we helped lead a petition that secured more than 51,000 signatures. And Amazing. that's sent over to the FDA. And we're in conversations with them to get this done as soon as we can. A really, really active year in advocacy, obviously. And as you laid out, some, some reasons to be excited about uh, the results. And also looking forward about what's possible. And we know that ALS advocates are not a group that are going to uh, stop persisting. They're going to keep pushing for more progress and more results. And that means another legislative agenda for you and your team. What does 2021 and beyond look like for you? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Look, Congress has passed the ALS Disability Insurance Access Act, and they are on their way to doubling funding again for one of the most vital ALS research programs. Congress is paying attention, and now is not the time to let off the gas. Now is the time to put the pedal to the metal. Mm -hmm. And so going into 2021, in broad strokes, uh, we're going to have an offensive agenda, policy agenda, and then also a defensive one. So let me give a little bit of context here. So we're going to have a heavy focus on making new treatments, bringing them to market, and making them available faster. So if they're approved... Uh, We also have to worry about it's not just approval, it's actually getting them covered by insurance. And so thinking of Amelix and the others coming down the pipeline, 
that is a big focus of ours, and that's going to continue to be the case as new products come throughout the pipeline. And it's, this is particularly important to a lot of the expensive stem cell and gene therapies that are in the pipeline, because those, uh, you know, regardless of the fact that it's ALS, lots of other diseases out there are also in a similar situation, particularly in the neurospace where uh, insurance isn't covering them and actually, you know, paying for them because they're so expensive. And so that's an issue that we'll be focused on. We're also going to be focused on, you know, determining risk factors and causes for ALS with the ultimate goal of, you know, either reducing or identifying cases sooner. So one of the things that we're learning is that the sooner that you diagnose somebody with ALS, the better quality and outcomes that you can have, you know, getting care to them sooner. And so one of the things that the ALS Association really leads on it through our 39 chapters across the country is providing direct care services to people with ALS. And so that's that's another one. And then improving health and well-being of people with ALS and their families. And so another thing that we've learned from COVID is that telehealth is really effective and it can be very helpful to people with ALS who have, you know, declined to the point where they have mobility issues and also, you know, what the potentials might be for remote clinical trials. And so, that's something that we're also keeping in mind, along with, you know, making sure that home infusion of drugs that are already out there for people with ALS are, are accessible in the home. Respite assistance for caregivers. Also, President-elect Joe Biden has, as part of his agenda for, for the next Congress, tax breaks and assistance for informal caregivers. And mm. so we also want to think about caregivers and the amount of effort that they put in. Sometimes they even have to leave a job in order to care for the person with ALS that they love. And so making sure that they're receiving some financial help because the average cost of this disease is like over a million dollars over the course of the journey. And so it's, it's just something to keep in mind. On the defensive side, there's been a lot of money invested into dealing with the COVID pandemic. And so coming out of this pandemic, the federal government's, you know, going to be looking at ways to make cuts and austerity measures. And it's not just an offensive agenda. It's also protecting the gains that we've made. And NIH funding is a big one of those. There's been steady increase in NIH funding over the past several years. And NIH is the largest funder of ALS research in the world. We can't let that, you know, go backwards, despite the fact that we might see increases in other areas of the federal government. And so while there's a lot that we want to get done, there's also a lot that we need to make sure isn't turned back. Abram, let me ask you this, and thank you for uh, that in-depth look at really kind of what's coming up. And I like how you uh, phrased it as offensive versus defensive. You have to protect what we already have as a community as well. That's so important. But let me ask, for anyone who has wanted to join the advocacy effort and get involved at the state or federal level, seeing some of these things come to life and take action, what are the best first steps for them to take? Should they get in touch with their local ALS Association chapter? Yeah, I think that that's an excellent first step. And so if you go to ALS.org, you can look up which chapter you are just by geolocating and then it'll provide you contact information right there. And you can also go to alsadvocacy.org forward slash advocacy and sign up to be an advocate on our action center, which will make sure that you're receiving all of the most up-to-date um, information on what we're doing and how we can use your help. Thank you so much, Abram, for your time today and for this uh, really robust look at advocacy. Thank you so much. 
Well, you said it, Mike, and Abram delivered with a lot of big news, exciting news, a huge year in advocacy, despite some challenges, uh, you know, not able to get to Washington, D.C. and have those face-to-face meetings. I I know, you know, we talked to Ashley on the advocacy team earlier this year uh, and how quickly they were able to pivot into virtual advocacy uh, with, with that May conference. And you see the effectiveness of ALS advocates reaching out to members of Congress, SSDI bill, huge win, and really some excitement from Abram heading into 2021, blocking and tackling, playing offense and defense. I love it. Uh, Really looking forward to all the work that they're going to be accomplishing in 2021. Extremely impressive how much ALS advocates were able to get done uh, in the last year plus, given the circumstances, and it speaks to their dedication and commitment to the cause. As Abram mentioned, uh, Jeremy, you can take the initial steps to becoming an ALS advocate by contacting your local chapter or by visiting ALS.org and while you're online, you may as well zip over to connectingals.org and subscribe to the show or click that same button on your favorite podcast service. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter where you'll be notified anytime new content drops. That's all for this week. Make sure you tune in next Thursday for a look back at the year in care services. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll connect with you again soon. 